conquer before they went into the rest of the promised land. And it wasn't like they could bypass it, go around it. They needed to really take care of business uh, so they could go on with nothing behind or on their back. So they went to Ai, and Joshua did as he had done before. He sent two spies, or spies, uh, into Ai. They came back and said, hey, no problem. Let's just send 3,000 people. We can defeat these people easy. And uh, so they sent the 3,000 up, and they were routed by the uh, people in Ai, the army, and 36 men died. Now, they hadn't lost any, anyone and, at Jericho. But 36 men died. And, of course, uh, Joshua was distraught. Uh, he was, you know, what's happened, you know. And it's interesting when you read through the things there in chapter 7, basically he's blaming God. He says, God, why did you allow this to happen, you know. Rather than saying, okay, what is it in me? Is it something in our camp? And of course, at that time, then God revealed to him, said, this is how you're going to find out there's, there's sin in the camp. And God in his providence always seeks to give us an opportunity to repent. He wants us to repent. In the Garden of Eve, Eden, when he went to Adam and Eve, and he said, Where for art thou, Adam? And Adam came up and said, Well, we, we hid ourselves. Why did you hide yourselves? Because we uh, ate of the forbidden fruit. So he was giving them continual opportunity to repent. Did God know what they had done? Yes. He did know. It wasn't a secret to God. But he wanted to give them an opportunity to repent. So here's Achan. They eliminate the tribes to Achan's tribe. He doesn't repent. They eliminate the families of the tribes to get to Achan's family or clan. They eliminate the members of the clan and get to Achan himself. And then Achan confesses. But he, I don't believe he repented. I believe he, he, he was sorry he got caught in getting caught then he was forced but God gave him ample opportunity to repent and he could have stepped forward and said it's me this is what I did he didn't do that we know from other examples in scripture I think of Peter David John Mark who quit Elijah who felt self-pity had a pity party for himself these individuals they they didn't just confess they repented and God extended to them mercy so we, we see that that, that, is, that opportunity is there, but he didn't take it. And so therefore we have in chapter 7 the law of the sowing and reaping. The sin that was sowed, they reaped 36 individuals, men died, Israel was defeated, defeated, Achan and his family were stoned, and as we finished chapter 7, we finished with the Valley of Achor, also known as the Valley of Trouble. And as I mentioned then, what's exciting about the scripture, and this is always exciting when you find out these uh, nuggets of truth, is that the Valley of Achor is referred to twice later in the Old Testament, once in Hosea and once in Isaiah. And it's called the Door of Hope. Now the Valley of Trouble can become a Door of Hope, which, which really leads us, leads us then to chapter 8. Chapter 7 had to take place in order to get us to chapter 8. The judgment of sin, the consequences for the sin and choices had to take place. Even Achan's death had to take place for them to get to chapter 8. Failure is not final. In chapter 8, we have the law of the second chance. Do not, do not presume upon God that he's going to give you a second chance. 
Because, you see, it requires repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It was required for repentance to take place. Job probably expressed it best in Job chapter 42, verse 6. As he comes and he's confronted by God, he finally is, comes at the end of Job where he's going through all this suffering and he's being accused of things and finally he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, now my eye seeth thee, and I repent in dust and ashes. What has to happen before we can get to chapter 8 is Job chapter 42, verse 6. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye seeth thee, and I despise myself. I find myself disgusting. And I repent in dust and ashes. Repentance, the change of mind. Uh, he, uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He that hideth his sins shall not prosper. Uh, Achan. But whosoever confesseth and forsakes them shall have mercy. You must confess, you must forsake, and let me add to this, you must replace. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, as you read through that, that is one of the the put off and put on passages in in, in Paul's epistles. You need to put off. In fact, he uses the expression, you need to mortify, therefore, these members. That means to kill these members. Eradicate them. Radical change. So we we come then to chapter 8, uh, one man by the name of Robert Robb summarized it this way. Despite the fact that Israel had sinned, God did not totally forsake them. Yes, his blessings had been withheld from them because of their sin. But his covenant relationship with them had not been annulled. That covenant relationship has, is speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. That promise made to Abraham was given to him before the law was ever in place. But we know from the law there's cursings and blessings. You obey, blessed. You disobey, you curse. You suffer the consequences. The failure did not annul his promises that he made to them. But his covenant relationship with them had not been annulled. And because Joshua and the people, in the wake of their humiliating defeat, had listened to God, had identified the root cause of the problem which caused their defeat, and dwelt and dealt with the problem in the way which God himself had prescribed, the way was now open for the blessings of God to be restored once again for a miserable failure to be turned into a marvelous victory and for this enemy stronghold of AI to be conquered. Failure does not have to be final. Listen, all of us has failed in some respect. If we come like they did, like Job confront their sin, confess their sin, he will restore us to a relationship and give us that second chance. Some of you have overcome alcohol, sexual sins, poor role, being a poor role model, divorce, greed, gossip, pride, poor decisions, selfishness. And God has given you a second chance. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Of course, you may be sitting there and say, Pastor Ken, none of those things touched me at all. Well, let's talk after the service about your problem with pride. Henry Ford defined failure as an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Here we have an opportunity in chapter 8, this law of the second chance, to begin again more intelligently. Failure does not have to be final. That's not the end. Listen, 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 this is what the devil whispers in your ear. You have failed so miserably, God can never use you. 
Well, there may be some things that you will not be able to do because of your failure, but at the same time, you need to understand this. God loves you. He will forgive you. And if you completely surrender and change in your heart and your mind in the direction you're going, he will again use you. Failure is not final. So in chapter 8, we see the law of the second chance. What is my personal response to be to the second chance? In other words, let's say I'm in the second chance. I've got a second chance. Maybe you know someone who's in a second chance, or maybe you're in the second chance, or maybe someday you will face this whole aspect of getting a second chance. How should I interact with that? How should I uh, work through that process? What are the things that I should look for? What are the things I need to be uh, aware, aware of? First of all, embrace the promises of God. If you look there in chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Embrace the promises of God. This harkens back to, to chapter 1, verse 5 and 9. Remember in chapter 1, the angel of the Lord comes to Joshua, and he's preparing Joshua to go into the, the land. And if you remember that, that message, I said this, and I've used it different times. It's important for us to realize this. We are in a battle. We are not on a playground. This is a battleground, not a playground. One of the things that Joshua needed to do was embrace the promises of God. So here I am in the second chance. How do, how do I interact with that? Embrace the promises of God. What he said in Joshua chapter 1 is still true in Joshua chapter 8. Those promises that you made didn't suddenly disappear. They're still there. As we embrace this opportunity set before us, we need to embrace the promises of God. Now, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Now, which is like after all these things that have happened, chapter 7, Now, the Lord said to Joshua, Well, we are in the now moment. We are in this opportunity. We are in this place of a second chance. In verse 5 of chapter 1, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you, wherever you go. We need to embrace his promise. His power. God is omnipotent. There's nothing, there is nothing too hard for God to do. Even the second chance. He's powerful. His presence, as he's promised there, says he will never leave you nor forsake you. One of the unique things we have as we enter into this age of grace, or this this dispensation of the church, or this New Testament era, we have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because he has permanently indwelt us, he is always present with us. And how often do we forget that by the things we say, or the things we do, or the places we go? We don't walk into a place we shouldn't be and God stays at the door because he indwells us and lives in He walks, actually walks in with us. And yes, he may be ashamed of us as we need to be ashamed of ourselves. But his presence, he will never leave us nor forsake us. It doesn't matter the darkest moment, the darkest corner of the room that you've been in, God was there. You see, when you think back of Joshua chapter 7, 
and you look at back at Joshua's prayer, and even it says here, do not be dismayed, do not be afraid. Where was God in this battle with Ai? He's the same place he's always been. It wasn't God that wasn't the issue. The issue was that Israel and Achan weren't where they were supposed to be. God was the same. He's always present. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Which brings us to the third one. I got a little ahead of myself there. And that's his faithfulness. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Be strong and good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Rely upon his faithfulness. As we get this second chance, as we embrace this second opportunity, we can embrace the promise that he is powerful, his presence, and his faithfulness. Those things are are constant. Uh, as I said back when I preached that message, wherever when or was several weeks ago, I want to say again: Why did the angel of the Lord give these three promises to Joshua? What about some of the other areas and things? I, I don't have the answer to that, but I but I can say this with confidence: As we are in the battle on the battleground. We need to keep in mind these three things. His power, his presence, and his faithfulness. If we can keep that right and our relationship with him right, all these other things will fall into place. But there's nothing too hard for him. He's always with us. And he is faithful unto then. As I said there, uh, he will provide a way of escape. Because we are his and he is in us. Secondly, we embrace the promise of God. The second thing is a radical change of mind is required. You know, as you come into the second chance, you, you, don't, you don't want to repeat the same mistakes, do you? You don't want to have to go back into chapter 7, do you? Listen, you will never be able to get those 36 lives back. They are completely, utterly lost. You can't turn back the clock. Those were the consequences of the choices that have been made. But you don't want to have 36 more men die, do you? Of course not. A radical chain of mind, is, it says, be not afraid nor dismayed. As, uh, I looked up the words in the Wilson's uh, Old Testament word study. It said this, to be broken, disabled, applied to the mind, faint-hearted, doubt, fear of the mind. You need, if we get into, and God allows us to have a second chance, we need to have a radical change of mind. That broken Disabled, do not, he says, do not be afraid or dismayed. We don't have to be afraid. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2, or 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Repentance is a change of mind. Sanctification is from something to something, from sin to to the holiness of God, from self to the Savior. Not afraid. Be not dismayed. A radical change of mind. The third thing, as God takes us into this area of the opportunity of a second chance, return to the scene of failure may be necessary. Now, the operative word there is may. In this case, it wasn't an option. They had to go back to AI. It may be necessary for you to return to that place 
where the failure took place. It may be, it may be necessary to go back in order to go forward. See, they had to conquer AI before they could go forward throughout the rest of the land. You say, well, why? Well, for restoration, for restitution, for renewal. I'm not saying that these are always the case. Usually, one of these is going to be involved in the reason why you may need to go back to the place of failure. For restoration, broken relationships. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. In other words, don't compromise. Without which no one will see the Lord. Now this is talking with a believer and non-believer, I believe, here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse, or 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. Proverbs Romans chapter 12, verse 18, I believe specifically is speaking there of those who are in the faith, just like you and I who know Christ our Savior. 12, 18 says, if it, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The point being this. You are responsible for this half of the relationship. I can't make you be at peace with me, but I sure need to make sure that I give you every opportunity to be at peace with me as well as I be at peace with you. It may be necessary. It may be an opportunity there for restoration of a broken relationship. I thought it was interesting when you look at the New Testament how many scriptures there are of the one another. The one another uh, scriptures. There's a catchy name for that. I can't remember what it is. I have been losing my memory lately. Uh, but there's, there's about 59 plus one another's in the New Testament. And as we talk about an, uh, uh, relationships within the church body itself, the one another, admonish one another, Colossians 3.16. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Bear with one another, Ephesians 4.2. Build up one another, Romans 14.19. Care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12.25. Comfort one another. First Thessalonians 4.18. Confess faults to one another. James 5.16. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12.10. Encourage one another. First Thessalonians 5.11 and Hebrews 3 verse 13. Forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32. Just a sampling. How can we have this relationship where we're bearing with one another, where we're comforting one another, where we're confessing to one another, and if we're not living at peace with one another to begin with? So it it may be necessary for you to return to the place of the failure for restoration, broken relationships, for restitution, uh, financial compensation. There was an illustration. You may have heard this. It it was going around. It's been used many times. It's called the copper nails. It goes like this. F.E. March was preaching on the subject of of restitution. A young man came to him and said, Pastor, you have put me in a bad fix. I've stolen from my employer, and I'm ashamed to tell him about it. You see, I'm a boat builder, and the man I work for is an unbeliever. I've often talked to him about Christ, but he only laughs at me. In my work, expensive copper nails are used because they won't rust in water. I've been taking some of them home for a boat I'm building in my backyard. I'm afraid if I tell my boss what I've done and offer to pay for them, He'll think I'm a hypocrite, and I'll never be able to reach him for Christ. Yet, my conscience is bothered. Later, when the man saw the preacher again, he exclaimed, Pastor, 
I've settled that matter, and I'm so relieved. What happened when you told your boss, asked the minister. Oh, he looked at me intently and said, George, I've always thought you were a hypocrite, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe there's something to your Christianity after all. Any religion that makes a man admit he's been stealing a few copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. So you may have some copper nails in your, in your focus or in your life. And you may need to go to another, to one another, and restore and make restitution. The copper nails. For restitution. For renewal. Spiritual growth. It may be necessary to go back in order to go forward. Perhaps the best summary of spiritual growth is found in First Thessalonians or First Peter, Second Peter. I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one, verse thirty-eight. You can go and read that. Let me give you the four points of that. Simply this: number one, increasing in knowledge and understanding of God. Spiritual growth is increasing in knowledge and understanding about God. What What have you learned about God today? What have you learned about God this week? Is spiritual growth really taking place in your life or my life? Increasing in your knowledge and understanding of God. Secondly, decreasing in your frequency to sin. I still sin. I still struggle with particular sins. But as I grow and mature in my faith, I don't struggle to the same degree with those sins as I used to. Spiritual growth has taken place in that area in my life. But then it's always, once you conquer one, how another one pops up. But decreasing in frequency to sin. Increasing in your faith and trust in God. Think of the different situations that come in your life in which you've had to increase your faith and give it over to God and say, you know what, God, I just, I can't handle this. Well, you know what, you never could handle it. To increase your faith and trust in God. And increase your practice of a Christ-like qualities. I always love that passage in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be which you, in you which is also in Christ Jesus. What mind? Helpfulness and humility. Those are the two things that stand out about Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. Helpfulness and humility. In your practice of a Christ-like qualities. He was a servant first. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to give himself those Christ-like qualities. It may be necessary, it may be necessary for you to go back in order for you to go forward. They still were going to have to fight the battle in AI. They still were going to have to confront the enemy. Now let's go to chapter 8. I want to read a few verses here. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city of, of behind him. Boy, if Achan could have just been more patient... Because when they came to AI, they could take everything they wanted or anything they wanted. But he was running ahead of God rather than waiting on God. And so here's the plan. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. 
lay an ambush for the city behind it. Otherwise, and you read through the rest of verses up there, almost down to verse 29. They had an army in front. Ai thought, of course, piece of cake, they're a bunch of chickens. And so Israel started to withdraw as Ai came out, and the king said, let's go pursue them, let's just wipe them out now, let's get this over with. So they emptied the city, and behind the city, they had put an ambush, or they had put another group of their soldiers, and they came up into the city and began to destroy the city, and as the people in Ai looked back, they saw the burning and smoke, and they realized that they had been tricked, and now they were surrounded, and God conquered Ai. God has a plan. We need to follow God's plan. Like Joshua, like Joshua in Israel, we go to do our thing, and, well, we fail. Then we complain. But if we are to win the day, you got this? If we are to win the day, we must live in his word daily. God always had a plan. They, they didn't ask God, what is your plan? They took matters into their own hands. They did not wait on God. If you're going to win the day, here we are in this great opportunity, the second chance. And if we're going to win the day, we must be in the Word daily. In Leroy Ames wrote in The Last Art of Disciple Making, he said, One spring, our family was driving from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa, Florida, As far as the eye could see, orange trees were loaded with fruit. When we stopped for breakfast, I ordered orange juice with my eggs. I'm sorry, the waitress said. I can't bring you orange juice. Our machine is broken. At first, I was dumbfounded. We were surrounded by millions of oranges, and I knew they had oranges in the kitchen. Orange slices garnished our plates. What was the problem? No juice? Hardly. We were surrounded by thousands of gallons of juice. The problem was they had come dependent on a machine to get it. Christians are sometimes like that. They may be surrounded by Bibles in their homes, but if something should happen to the Sunday morning preaching service, they would have no nourishment for their souls. The problem is not a lack of spiritual food, but that many Christians haven't grown enough to know how to get it for themselves. You want to win the day? You've got to be in the Scriptures daily. You have to be in the Word daily. See, God has a plan. It's laid out for us in His Scriptures. Here we have this incredible opportunity of a second chance. You need to follow God's plan. Last one. Worship. I, I, I really like this message. Okay, I really like these last few verses. They've won the battle. So they come to verse 30. By the way, what happens in verse 30 to verse 35 was told to them by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27. He said, when you get into the land, by the way, when you get into, and this was several months before they ever got to this point. He says, by the way, when you get into the land at Mount Ebal, This is what I want you to do. And this is what happened. After they conquered Ai, now you look at verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. 
And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger, as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in Mount Gerizim, half of them in the Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless, bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings, the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Worship. First of all, focus on God's grace. As we come to worship, notice what's the first thing they did. They built an altar. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. We focus on the grace of God. As we come to worship, whether it be a corporate worship, whether it be as you worship on your own, it's to focus on God, focus on God's grace. The altar. The burnt offerings. The burnt offerings were brought for sin. This is a sinless substitute. Again, this is where the offerer brought and put his hands on the lamb, representing his sin, and then he killed the lamb to shed that blood. The lamb was then given to the priest who cut it in the particular parts that had to be cut, laid it on the altar, and it was completely burned up, consumed on the altar. This is death to sin. But the peace offering was a fellowship offering. Part of the offering was offered on the sacrifice, and the other part was, as it was sitting there, was pulled off, and then the offerer and the priest ate this fellowship meal. For what? Because I am back in fellowship with God. See, you, you and I on a daily basis, Jesus Christ, our, our sin substitute, has died once for all time. I can come boldly before the throne of grace, confess my sin, and get back into fellowship with him. That's the whole point of 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as you look earlier in that chapter, in chapter uh, verse 7, he talks about the whole aspect of fellowship. How can we have fellowship? Because now we have common ground. So they brought the burnt offering, sin, and fellowship, the peace offering, the fellowship offering, to that they were back in that right relationship with God. But the focus was on God's grace. As we worship, we need to focus on God's grace. We need to focus on God's glory. Notice the ark, the central, the central figure. Of There's Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. In the center of all of that, you have the ark. The ark, of course, represents the presence of God. And we, we focus on God's glory. And above the ark, of course, in representative of God is the, the Shekinah glory itself. We focus on the glory of God. Not the glory of man. Not that there's not good things that you can do or have done. But we focus on the glory of God, of what he's done, what he's accomplished what he continues to accomplish. Our central focus, as we look as the ark is placed there between the two mountains. By the way, I thought this was interesting. The Mount Gerizim and Ebal is, is considered, there's, it's like an amphitheater. So the, as they had the different crowds, uh, people on each of the mountainsides, and as they read the scriptures and they answered each other, it would echo back and forth. It would be like a stereo. The central focus, of course, being the ark, the presence of God himself. 
and then focus on God's guidelines. As we look back in the passage in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27, I believe it doesn't give us that account here, but I believe as it was read in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it was the same way it was read here. And what he did was he read along, and then they, it was like responsive reading. They would read, people would respond. They would read, people would respond. Well, they read the blessing or the cursing, people said amen. They read, they didn't say sweet, they said amen. As they read along, the people respond, amen. Amen is basically saying, so be it. As you have said, you will bless us if we obey, you will curse us if we disobey. We commit ourselves to the word. That focus on God's guidelines, specifically as it talks there uh, about the law. In the last, I, I would say last four, maybe five years, I've, I've looked at, a, I've tried to find a good definition of worship. The, the standing definition that I've used has been to focus on God because of Jesus Christ. And that's not a bad definition. It's a good definition. When I come to worship, I want to focus on God. When we try to create an atmosphere of worship, it's to focus on God because of Christ. Then I came across this definition. It's awesome. Just think about it. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To, to, to love what God loves and hate what God hates. To quicken my conscience, that, that decisions that I make, that it would be quickened by the holiness of God. That I was so focused on his, his purity. He's clean, he's free from the taint of sin. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. The second one, to feed the mind. You think about it, what are you feeding your mind with? What are you feeding on? But to feed your mind with the truth of God. Not only to quicken my conscience by the holiness of God, but to feed the mind with the truth of God. We feed our mind with so much garbage. Even indirectly, whether, even if we're not doing it on purpose, it indirectly comes upon us. But fill your mind with the truth of God. To be in the truth, to be able to fill your mind with the truth. To purge the imagination. We have these fantasies. Our mind runs amok. It, you know, we may be praying at one point and our mind is thinking about 25,000 other things. But to purge the imagination of the, with the beauty of God. His presence, his power, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness. Purge the imagination with the beauty of God. Focus on that. Think about that. Dwell upon it. And then to open the heart to the love of God. To open your heart to the love of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, the last verse, it says, We need to forgive others even as Christ hath forgiven us, or God hath forgiven us. Why did he forgive us? Because of his love. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To open our heart to the love of God. And finally, to devote the will, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Are you fulfilling God's purpose in your life? What's the primary purpose of our, in our lives? If you accept Christ as your personal Savior, now you become a discipler. Who are you discipling? What difference have you made in anybody's life in the last year? What difference are you making in anybody's life right now? To devote the will to the purpose of God. Not my will, but thy will be done. Not me, it's you. To worship. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination with the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purpose of God. You know, as you enter in today, maybe it's scripture reading, or maybe later in the week you're entering a time of devotions and quiet time. Before you begin to sit down and read through the scriptures, read through this. And just prayerfully consider these things. That as you read, then these things will come to mind. That you truly may worship. As we come and talk about the law of the second chance, these are things that you put into place to help you be able to work through that whole process. Embrace the promises of God. Radical change of mind required. Return to the scene of failure may be necessary. Follow God's plan and worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the scriptures and the word. Thank you for the time we can dwell on these things. Thank you for, even though it's been a long morning, the, the attentiveness. And we just pray, we're relying upon the Spirit of God to bring about lasting change in the lives. And Lord, we pray for each of us as you impact us. Not only will we realize the change that needs to take place, but we will make that change. We will rely upon you to continue to make it, to meet, continue working and making that change in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, there may be those here that are in the midst of the second chance, or those who didn't realize that by the grace of God, they may get a second chance. I pray that they will rely upon you and look to you, truly worship, embrace your promises, radically change their mind, return, they may have to return to the scene of failure. Oh God, I pray that you help them through these things, realizing in all this you have a plan. You're still in charge. In Christ's name we pray, amen.